we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Buffalo What's Next. I'm Angelie Preston. And today we have Nadia Sharam. She is a mediation attorney, author, activist, and advocate for women's rights. She is the founder and president of the Coalition for the Advancement of Muslim Women, an organization promoting equality for Muslim women. Nadia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me. So I want to talk about uh, the Women Life Freedom Movement in Iran. Tell us about that movement. Uh, as you know, uh, I was born and raised in Iran, so I am, I am, um, I have a soft corner in my heart for my native country of Iran. And uh, the movement started in September of last year after death of Mahsa Amini in the hands of morality police. And uh, that kind of uh, revolutionized the movement which has been ongoing for the last 43 years underground kind of brought it to full force. She was a 22, 23 years old Kurdish young girl uh, going to law school, wanting to become an attorney in, in her native uh, province and was just visiting Tehran with her brother. Uh, her hair was showing just a touch from under her cover, her head scarf, and that, that started a series of, of, uh, of events which ended up in her death. And when it was publicized that uh, through a bravery of a reporter who is still in prison, for publicizing the news of, of Mahsa's death under the, the torture and beating of the morality police, then it, the volcano erupted. Can you explain to us what the morality police are? Who are they? Morality police are directly hired by Basijis. Basijis are the police force around the Khamenei, the supreme leader. So morality police and Basijis, they work directly for and by the command of, of uh, the supreme leader Khamenei. They walk around and I have faced them in Iran in 2004, 2005. So uh, they walk around in groups. So the morality police usually are women who are wearing black head to toe, and they are always surrounded by, by the, the, the police, the men who are 
carrying guns and, and, and also batons to, to, to beat people that the morality women, morality police women pointing at that they need to be t- taught a lesson. So the morality police are, are women that are, that are practicing this gender apartheid against other women. Exactly. So with Masa Amini and her death, the, the morality police, they said that she didn't properly wear her hijab, and, and this is why she was arrested and, and beaten, which ultimately led to her death, correct? Correct. And, and there are footages, you know, that were uh, sent around in social media by, by Iranians who were, you know, passers who, who were witnessing. And, and, and uh, it shows very clearly how everything, how everything began and how quickly it escalated when a couple of guys, you know, from the same team, they came and they just shoved her into the van, which is, that is how they do it. And she was just screaming nonstop. And there are still more incidences of of this police brutality, of this brutality in Iran today as we speak, correct? Correct. Uh, Over 600 of known deaths to children, anywhere from 10 years old, from six years old, the youngest was six. So from six years old to maybe 25 years old, these are mostly uh, protesters, peaceful protesters on the street. And these are known 600, thousands of arrests. And and, and some people, they say it could be as high as 40,000 people were arrested and put into prisons. And, and people have disappeared. So there are still families who are looking for the whereabouts of their daughters and sons, and in some cases of, of mothers and fathers. When we, you mentioned you know, children being murdered by the Islamic regime. What is the, what is the state? How are, how are people in Iran coping? Like, how are they doing in this, in this climate, in this uh, against the regime. Uh, I don't think we have enough time here to to talk about a specific incidents as to how Iranian people and especially Iranian women and they are they, they are truly being supported by their brothers and husbands and and and, and their fathers, but Iranian women. I don't know if it is appropriate here to say they're badass. They are strong and they are fighting. They are fighting. There is an expression in, in Farsi that they say from kafe khiyabun. They are fighting from asphalts on the streets. They are, they are on the pavements. They are just standing and shouting slogans in support of democracy and freedom. They are not asking for something that is like, wow, what do they want? No, it is not mind boggling. It is basic freedom, the right to live. I'm sorry. Do you wanna um, take a break? Do you? I'm fine, I'm sorry. Um, Should I get some tissue? I'm good, I'm good. Sorry. I'm sorry. No. Anytime you want to stop, oh. we can. Knowing what's going, I mean, I can literally imagine 
what's going on. I have never been involved. I have never been in any war, in any revolution. I lived in Iran until I was 16 years old. It was a very peaceful country. I can imagine it because I have so much passion for those people. And when I see Iranian women's bravery on the streets through cell phones, through these amateur you know, videos that we receive, I'm thinking, oh my God, what can I do for them? What can I do for them? What can, what can we do here in, in the States and, and in Buffalo? You are doing what you can. The media has been too quiet about this revolution. Our people, our sisters, other humans, you know, in Iran, they need our voices. Iran is a wealthy country. They are not asking for money from us. They are literally giving blood. They are, they are dying for the cause. What is the cause? The cause is democracy. The cause is something that you and I, as Americans, are a big proponent of that within our borders. We must be vocal for democracy, for others who are living outside of our borders. It is a basic principle of human rights. Some people would say that Masa Amini's death was the catalyst for the women life freedom revolution. But from what I understand, uh, the people of Iran have been protesting uh, the, against the policies of the Islamic regime for years. Yes. Yes. So to be exact, 44 years. And Women Life Freedom, Jean Zendigi Azadi, it was really the slogan that Kurdish women, they used in their battle against tyranny. So this, this slogan was kind of was gotten, you know, it has deep, deep roots. And, and when Mahsa Amini, who was a Kurd, then was, was killed, then that, that, Zan Zendigi Azadi was kind of modeled after after the freedom fighters, female freedom fighters, in, in different battles that they have been having, not just with Islamic government, but also with, with different uh, governments around the Kurdish part. Do you still have family in Iran? I don't have any families in Iran, luckily. Uh, they all live in California. But I have, I have cousins whom I have never met, but I know of them. And you really don't have to be related, right, to feel the pain. And, and in my introduction, you said that I'm a founder of, of Coalition for Advancement of Muslim Women. And, and the reason that I put that coalition together, not having Iranian women in mind at all, it's mainly because in the community that we live in, Buffalo, New York, there are many refugees, many low-income immigrants that I felt I needed, I, I, I needed to do something for them. Yes, I am Muslim. Yes, Iran is a Muslim country. But the way that my generation practice Islam in Iran and the way 80% of Iranians are practicing Islam, it's very different than the way the Islamic government is practicing. 
What has been the response uh, since you started the coalition of women here uh, in Western New York? Pretty good. I am so lucky to to be part of, of Buffalo community and truly the name City of Good Neighbors matches the action that each individual as a community member does take. Uh, I have friends all over, you know, in, in from all different ethnicity, all different backgrounds who are here, and I can truly call them my sisters, whether they are from my own, you know, legal background, whether they're, they're, they're Jewish, they're Muslim, they're Christian, they're, they're Baha'is. It's truly city of good neighbors. And you were born in Tehran, and you mentioned that you left at 16. What do you remember about Iran before 1979? Iran, for me, was a beautiful country. Um, I was raised and born into a a middle-class, well-to-do middle-class family, educated. Uh, And and with my five sisters and and parents, we had a we had a wonderful life. I of course, you know, I have to say I didn't know anything about politics. I didn't know much about the regime. Uh, Iran socially was a democratic country at that time. We had women judges. We had women attorneys. There was, as far as I know. There was no limit for women. And, and, and when I say that, I'm sure there was a gray line, you know, around some place, even at that time. But socially, it was a democratic country. It was a, it was a one political party. Yes, it, it, was, it was a type of dictatorship, but the infrastructure of Iran was strong. Iran in terms of producing oil, in terms of producing gas, and natural resources was between top three countries at that time. And still, it is. It, I believe it is number two, but because of sanctions, they are not producing the wealth of the family through regular channels. They are producing in the black market and selling in the black market, by mm. day I mean the government. So the money goes directly to the supreme leader's pocket and the police that surrounds him and his own family. So what are some things that we as women here that we do freely that are not allowed or or are done with limitations in Iran? The basic rights, open your door and step out the way you want to step out. You don't have to worry about, is my, is my uh, cloak that I am wearing on top of my, you know, my whatever I'm wearing on that day, is it loose enough to cover all my curves? Is it the color that they approve of? Because you know, women in Iran, now they wear black mainly. Loose outfits in black color. So right? even as something as simple as choosing the color to wear is, you don't even have that choice in Iran. And in Iran, they can come to your house. They can break down your door, 
because the music is loud, because they suspect some immorality going on inside your house. That has been used and it's continued to be used against Iranian citizens. So the 1979 revolution, it was, it, it was supposed to make, it was supposed to be better for the people of Iran. And it sounds like that, that's not the case. Definitely, it's not the case. 1979 revolution was kidnapped by the Islamist government. It was not meant at all, based, based on history, based on all the you know, published writings by different people who were involved then, that they have analyzed what has happened. It was truly kidnapped by the government, by this government, and, and people were promised that if they support them, then people are going to be much better off than they were during Shah regime. But their freedom, freedom of movements, freedom of employment, freedom of traveling, freedom of choice was taken especially from women, from everyone, right, men and women, but especially from women, one by one. So there's lack of, of women's rights, there's gender apartheid, but there's also religious oppression. Talk about that. So the Islamic government in Iran, they are Muslims and they are Shias. They, they, they are the minority sect and it's being practiced mainly in Iran and, and Syria and, and, and some in Iraq as well. So if you do not hold the same beliefs as their own version, their own interpretation, and I cannot underline that enough. This is their own interpretation, which is in line with dictatorship. It has not so much to do with Islam, but it has to do with interpretation that fits into their own work, into their own governance of a country. The interpretation that the Islamic government of Iran has of Islam is exactly what dictators all over the world have when they rule a country. One thing that I've seen with the Women Life Freedom Movement is that there are a lot of young people at the forefront, um, millennials and generation, generation Zers, right? And it's not just women, it's men too. It, men are affected by the injustices that are happening in Iran too, correct? Of course, and, and, and you know, even though we all say, you know, women life freedom and, and, and you know, I, I myself as a woman say that I am so proud of my Iranian sisters, but if it's not because of man's support, and this is younger generation as well as older generations, then women cannot do it on their own. The, the government, their policies has affected both genders, but it has affected women as it usually does right, all over the world, when, when, when we are at war, when, when there are conflicts within the country, whether it is from inside movements or is from outside pressure, women 
are the recipient of the bulk of those tragedies. For example, now it's with great sadness that I have to say this, that that Iranian government has begun, this I believe began about three weeks ago, has begun using chemical warfare in girls' school, all girls' school, about 100 schools all over Iran, girls, and these girls are middle schoolers because that's the age that these brave girls, they, they are protesting on the street, removing their scarf, burning their scarf, and shouting death to dictator. And so these girls, this age group, in all girls' school are being targeted specifically by the government. So far, and I'm going to say knock wood, so far, no boys' school have had that issue. I'm not saying that's, that's, you know, I'm not wishing for it to happen, but it just shows that how the government is scared of women because keeping women under control, especially through the scarf, is one of the main goals, has always been one of the main goals of the government. The gases that the Islamic regime is using against the, the school-age girls, are, are these gases intended to kill them? Are they what? Well, as, as far as the report says, it is intended for them to go to hospitals and their parents, especially mothers, are going to worry about their welfares, meaning the girls' welfares, and schools will be closed. This is the tactic that they have used in Chechnya, I believe, several years ago. This is the tactic that they have used in Afghanistan. So these are all pressures on families not to send their girls to a school. So there are, there, there are so many, you know, cartoons are, are going around now that shows that mothers, as they are braiding their daughter's hair in the morning and getting her ready to go to school and, and packing lunch and putting in the backpack, they're also providing gas mask. Wow. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a reality that's happening currently. You know, when we hear about this, right, I feel no matter how little of a, of a move we are going to do here, no matter how small of a sound bite we are going to make, but we have to do something about it because now we are smarter. We know what happened to, to Jewish people, right? They were, they were over a million. If I'm not wrong, it could be more, but my Jewish friends, my Jewish sisters now, we talk about it. We do whatever we can for the history of this type of tragedy not to happen again. And the same crime is happening in Iran now because it has begun. Iranian government, Islamic government is gassing girls at a school. So the intention right now is not to kill them, but the intention is to deprive them from getting education. And if they see resistance is continuing, 
who knows? Maybe they are going to repeat the crimes that has happened to my Jewish sisters. So when we hear these things, please don't turn your face away. Do something about it. Are you afraid that if the revolution, the, the Women Life Freedom Movement, um, is not successful? Um, Don't say that. Let, let me rephrase it. Um, are, you, are you scared or concerned that Iran could have a government like the Taliban, where in Afghanistan the, the restrictions for women are, are a lot worse no, it's not going to happen. Iranian women are not going to go back. It's not going to happen. They have done their share. They have paid and continue to pay high prices. It's their life, right? It is our turn. It is our turn in a free country. For relatively little bit of our efforts, to keep the fire burning. Leaders in, in this revolution, whether they are imprisoned in Iran, whether they are fighting on the streets in Iran, or whether they are in America or in Europe or in Australia, the, the, the leaders are coming together and, and they are putting a comprehensive plan how to help Iranian from within the country to have this big blowout revolution and, and, and then go to Iran and help to build Iran again, whether they want to have a kingdom or they want to have, they want to have any, kind of, any kind of regime. As long as democracy is going to be the center of that regime, that is what Iranians want. We have to help them. I cannot emphasize on the effect that your voice and my voice has. We hear about it through social media, back to us from Iran, that say something about our girls being gassed now. Say, do something. Why, tell, tell us why people who are outside of Iran People in the States, people in Canada, people in, in New Zealand, people all over the world, why should, <coughs> why, should, why should we care about what's happening in Iran? I think we should care because just that. If we don't have any reason, forget about security for the world because Iranian government is a terrorist government and their terrorism has had effects here in, in New York City and, and also in Chicago Institute just very recently in 22. They are spending the Iranian wealth, the Iranian you know, money from, from gas, from, from oil and from other natural resources. They're sending it to Lebanon, to Syria, to Iraq, to to encourage terrorism. They, they, they are supporting this, this uh, 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 they, they, they are involved in, in, a, in the war in Ukraine, right? So forget about all of these, that everyone will be safer. 
what about humanity? What about we should care? Because we should care. Because if people are suffering in another country, it will have a domino effect on our own self here. So if my neighbor is suffering, city of good neighbors, if my neighbor is suffering, it has an effect on me. So sometimes I get just a little bit annoyed when people say, why should U.S. help? Right? Because of humanity. How about that? What could or should our our leaders be doing um, from every sect of government, from local to federal? What what can or should they be doing to help the people of Iran? Some of the representatives locally and and Iran, United States, they have been very vocal about helping Iran. And, and, and by helping, monetary help is not on the table at all. That's not what is asked for. By acknowledging the suffering that Iranian people are going through. And, and, and the same way that, that, that our president, Joe Biden's presidency, himself directly and others around him are talking about the suffering of Ukraine. And, and our president went, went to Ukraine, and, and, and we have helped, I believe, over 480 million, if I'm not mistaken in my number, of, of aid to Ukraine. How about Iran and Iranian people? Iranian people are peace-loving people and love Americans and love to come to America. The Iranian people and American people, they have had long history of friendship and kinship. It was, if, you, if we want to open, you know, old graves, it was the American government that helped to put this change of regime into Iran. It was American government that caused a lot of pain for Iranian people. But still, Iranian people, they think extremely highly of American women. Not so much of American government, <laughs> but of American people. Because to Iranian women, we are the free. To Iranian women, we are the role model. You know, what went on in Seneca Falls 200 years ago, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, right, who, who wrote the first constitution for women. She drafted that right here in our own backyard, right? So Iranian women in Iran, they talk about that. So we are a role model. They need they need a little push now. Talk about the Iranian-American community here. We have one. Um, it's, it's not as large as Toronto, Ontario, or L.A., but you're here. Mm -hmm. we, uh, we, we are trying. We are trying to, to put, you know, 
larger crowds of Iranian together. We have we have several you know students here, but you're afraid students because they have also a student visa, and 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 it could be revoked not just by Iranian government by American government also. So they, they are they are kind of moving with us very gingerly, but. Just just ten days ago, we did a play. We had a play that 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 we told about Iranian stories, the tragic stories of of rape, as being as being used to teach morality. I mean, how how oxymoron is that to rape gang rape to teach morality to Iranian girls at the time of arrest? You know, people, those girls who are on the street saying we need democracy, we want democracy. So Iranian community, Iranian American community, they, they want what, you know, Polish community wants. They want what Ukrainian community wants or what Jewish community wants. We want to live at peace. And if we can help to bring peace to Iran, we must do that. What do you want our audience to know? You've you've mentioned um, that Iranians only want peace, and you're you're peaceful and just to to thrive, right? What do you want our audience to know about the people in Iran right now, the ones who who are living this? this day-to-day terror, um, being gassed, being killed, children being murdered. What do you want our audience to to know? Um, we are lucky that we live here in, in Buffalo, New York. Western New York is it's an educated audience, you know, for for world events, for Iranian revolution. I want, I hope, I wish, I beg, I request, when you hear about something happening in Iran, when you hear that they have raped another 14 years old girl, say something about it. Don't just say, oh, too bad, because history could be repeated. And and we are too smart for that. We are intelligent. We are considered to be, you know, free living here in a free country, in a democratic country. Nothing will happen to you and I if we are vocal about atrocities that this Islamic government in Iran doing to its own people. Acknowledge it. Don't turn your face away. And through social media, support the revolution. Support the cause. It's not. It's not a complicated concept. They want freedom. They want democracy. Nadia Sharam, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything else you want to say? Thank you for your interest. It really warms my heart to know that we have people like you who are interested in in, in democracy 6,500 miles away. Thank you. Buffalo-based attorney and activist Nadia Sharam is the founder and president of the Coalition for the Advancement of Muslim Women. She was talking with WBFO's Angelie Preston. This is Dave Debo. Stay with us. Coming up, 
Joanna Dominguez is here. She's the owner of Put a Plant on It in Buffalo. They're an Elmwood Village plant shop. They specialize in uh, rare plants, interior decorating, even plant sitting. And she recently joined a statewide effort to try and push for an increase in the minimum wage. Yes, a business owner who wants more costs at her own business. We'll talk more about that coming up. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. NPR's Student Podcast Challenge is back. Student podcasters in grade 5 through 12 can submit entries. The deadline is April 28th. Visit npr.org slash studentpodcastchallenge2023 for more information. Morning Edition takes listeners around the country and the world with multifaceted stories and commentaries that inform, challenge, and occasionally amuse. Morning Edition draws on reporting from correspondents based around the world and producers and reporters across the United States, while WBFO's Jay Moran brings you stories from Western New York and Southern Ontario. Listen weekdays starting at 6 a.m. Here and Now brings you the news you need to know today and the stories that will stick with you tomorrow, plus special series and behind-the-scenes extras. Don't miss Here and Now, weekdays at 1 p.m. on WBFO. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo. Today we're talking about the minimum wage. It is something that Governor Kathy Hochul certainly talked about back in January during her State of the State address. If we really want to continue to tackle the affordability crisis head on, we must recognize that the low-wage workers that we represent across this state Rural, suburban, urban, they're all over. They've been the hardest hit by inflation. The average cost of goods and energy for low-income households jumped over 13% over two years, and they were barely making it before. This pushes our families already on the margins to the breaking point. So as a matter of fairness, social justice, I'm proposing a plan to peg the minimum wage to inflation. If costs goes up, costs go up, so will wages. So will wages. Yeah. Now, it's interesting to note that she mentioned social justice there. Business groups have come out against the plan for an increased minimum wage. She wants to push it up to $15 an hour. They've come against the plan, though, because of its impact on jobs and the cost of doing business in a state that is already ranked 49th in the nation in terms of uh, pro-business policies and um, taxation. But the other side of the coin is what that minimum wage could mean for the state's poverty rate, what it could mean for women, what it could mean for people of color, what it could mean for uh, immigrants. Joanna Dominguez is here. She's she's both sides of that coin. She is a business owner on Elmwood Avenue, put a plant in it. But she's also someone who has come out as part of a statewide campaign of business people saying that this is the right thing to do. Joanna, thanks for stopping by. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about your business. How many employees do you have? We have five employees, including myself. Uh, We have 
another full-timer, and then three part-timers. And if the minimum wage went up to $15 an hour, you would then not just be taking a hit yourself. You would suddenly um, be paying more money to five people. Well, we already start people at fifteen fifty at my job, so we already are paying people above minimum minimum wage, and with obviously people who have more experience paying more, uh, we believe in paying people what they deserve to be paid at my store. Do you have any sympathy for the business owner who is not already there at fifteen, and looks at this mountain and says, "I can't scale that; it's too tall." I would say no, not really. Uh, we're still a relatively new business. We've only been around for about two and a half years, and I feel like we have a niche market. It's plants and a diverse niche market of plants. But if anyone can do it like, or would think that they wouldn't be able to do it, if I can, I feel like most people would be able to do it. Really? Okay. Yeah. So for you, it's uh, there is the pr- practical concern separate from the social justice idea. Yeah. Okay. I want to uh, cite some numbers from the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, This isn't state-specific numbers, but obviously the federal government has also talked about a minimum wage. Uh, And the Congressional Budget Office says, quote now, raising the minimum wage would increase the cost of employing low-wage workers. As a result, some employers would employ fewer workers than they would otherwise have. It then goes on to say that uh, indexing the minimum wage to medium hourly wages would lead to a larger effect on employment, wages, and family income than if they were just to raise the minimum wage. So there is a business argument to be made. Push back against that. I push back because I see by paying my employees a living wage, which is above minimum wage, that they invest in the community back into the whatever they need. So I have an employee and she needs a present for her friends or family. They shop on Elmwood. So they're putting money back into our community. We have artists that set up every summer out in front of the store. And my employees are often so excited to be the first to be able to buy things directly from those people. So by giving people a living wage, they're able to spend more money on luxuries. Um, One of my employees is even able to be saving to buy a house, which normally would be unheard of on a retail position. So the money that they would earn stays with them here in the community. Yes. It doesn't go to a big-pocketed corporate entity. No, no. And especially for when people I find are working for small businesses, they appreciate small businesses more and are more likely to invest in other small businesses as opposed to getting stuff from Amazon or something else. But the numbers, uh, again, I'm looking at something from the New York State Business Council, and this is specific to the the state uh, proposal. They say that for a small business with five employees, and, and that's you, you have five. Yeah. It would cost $62,400 more a year. Can businesses thrive? Can they succeed if they're suddenly paying $62,000 more? I feel like they can. Okay. Um, I, I, yeah. <laughs> would, would that kind of hit suddenly hurt you? I don't think so. Um, like I said, we're already, we're already there. So we're, okay. we're, we're already doing it. Now, the, the other side of the coin, and we, we mentioned this at the top, the uh, Partnership for the Public Good in Buffalo worked with the uh, Cornell University uh, Industrial and Labor Relations School, and they found out, they did a study, they found out that uh, moving this wage up in New York State would have a massive benefit for women, for workers of color, for foreign-born workers. 
Uh, in the city of Buffalo, more than two out of five workers, they say, earned less than $15 an hour. And uh, when it comes down to it, they say that the impact on women is huge. Women are 30% more likely to follow uh, fall into rather poverty than men. Uh, they say that in Erie County, the poverty rates for people of color are more than three times as high as those for whites. Your argument, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but your argument is this is the rising tide that will help a lot of boats that are maybe sinking. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I know a lot of the other businesses in the area that also support the raise for minimum wage almost all of them are minority-owned or minority businesses. There's Santiago from El Buen Amigo. He, I believe, is a Chilean immigrant. Um, Alexander Wright, African Heritage Food Co-op, who you've had on your show, he supports it. And several other ones. Um, Aaron from Fitz Books employs a lot of minorities and strictly minorities. So I know like the people who are being benefited are the people who deserve to be. Why, and this is kind of a rhetorical question, forgive me, why is that important? It's important to people to be able to afford their life and be able to afford not just living, but above living and luxuries items. And technically, what I'm selling is a luxury item. People don't need plants in oh, their life. Okay. And it's not a necessity like food or groceries. It's just an additive to your life that improves it. But it's like people need to be able to afford everything, not just living. Regionally, do you think we are in a worse spot than maybe other parts of the state? I would say yes, a little bit, just because Buffalo historically has not been at the top. But I feel like now with the resurgence and all, and I always tell this to people who are visiting, is one thing that I'm, tracks me to Buffalo as someone who has traveled the world is the diversity, but also the density of independently owned businesses. And I feel like we're able to do that here. And we're able to just take that even further. Tell me more. Are you talking there about the Elmwood Village specifically? No, all over Buffalo. <laughs> um, I would say uh, just Grant Street, East Side, everywhere. I just see so much entrepreneurship and so many people being able to start a business. And I feel like Buffalo is definitely one of the places that you can still live out an American dream. Part of the reason why I asked is because that's sort of the counterpoint to the idea that we're a tax high state. We can't afford this. Business isn't thriving here. Business isn't going to come here. You see the opposite. I see the complete opposite, definitely. Okay. And do you see it in places other than just the dense business district in the Elmwood Village? I do. Uh, I see it on the east side. I see it on Grant Street on the west side. Niagara Street is starting to thrive, and there's a lot of new businesses opening. And I just see it all over, all over Buffalo. You are part of this group that has been pushing for this. What What's the forecast? Have you any indication where it stands in the legislature? Um, are, are you pulling this group together because you know it needs perhaps the extra push? Yeah. I mean, I joined the group because I think it's important as personally as a Latina and someone who is a minority and a woman-owned business, it's important to lend my voice to this because a lot of people think people like me wouldn't be able to do it, so right. to speak. And so you are here so, to say just what you've said, that, yeah. that this is something that is doable even for minorities. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Have you heard from anyone in Albany how how likely it is it will pass? Do we have a do we have a forecast here? Personally I have not heard, but I feel like with Hokel supporting it that it has a like high likelihood of going through. 
In the remaining little bit here, I did want to ask you more broadly about Buffalo. You're, you're again, a business person operating on the uh, Elmwood Strip. What does Buffalo need? <laughs> and I know that's I know. such a broad <laughs> it's question. such a broad question. But you can answer um, it any yeah, way you like. Yeah, no, I just feel like it needs more people to come and see what how great Buffalo is. I have so many people that are living in places that they're not happy in. And I always tell everyone, like, come here, come here now. I... I'm not originally from here. I have traveled the entire world. I've lived in the entire world. There's nowhere else I want to be than here. And I think it's so important to get that word across. You know, we say keep Buffalo a secret. Mm. But I think instead it's more important that the secret needs to get out that this is a great place to be. Tell me a little bit about that journey. How did you end up here? I came here for undergrad and I stayed here for a little bit and then I went to grad school in New York City. And when I was looking for some place to kind of settle down, I decided to come back here. And had you any knowledge of the region before school? I never even visited. Wow. (laughs) Just took a leap and got into Canisius and I said, sure, this sounds great. Okay. How has the region changed as a result of the top shooting? I think it's changed as it's becoming more of a conversation, just the region and the issues that are around it. But also it's put a lens on Buffalo that has not really been on it before. And I like to generally be optimistic that because this lens is on Buffalo, that we're able to grow from it. As a result of that incident, I think there has certainly been a lot of attention paid to the needs of the East Side and specifically the African-American community. You're a Latina. Yes. Are there unmet needs that we're not hearing about in the Hispanic community? I would say, yeah, we have a lot of the same issues that are similar issues, I would say, than from the east side. And we need more investment in it by far and more lens focus, I guess. What do you mean? Um, I feel that people are not aware that we have a thriving Latino community here. And whereas we are aware that there's obviously that all the other separate communities and I wasn't even aware of how much of a thriving Latina community or Hispanic community that we have. And I think it's important to get that out. And I imagine part of that, too, is the segregation idea. If it's in a little pocket over here, I'm not going to notice it out in Akron or, or Orchard Park. Yeah. No, definitely. And it's uh, especially I feel like the Latina community has the density that mostly know it's like Niagara Street and like Virginia yeah. Street. And that's a, a lot of people don't go there at all. Yeah. And it's important. And I would argue, I think that Niagara has become more of a commercial strip right now than, yeah. say, Jefferson, obviously. No, definitely. And but not I feel like not the strip that is known as the Avenida Juan San Juan, which is yeah. kind of before that area that's yeah, occurring. Yeah, north of City Hall, Virginia area. That pocket is still a little bit not there yet. Okay. And that's the Hispanic pocket. What would have to change? I think that, I don't know, I, I kind of go back and forth. It's like I would like to see more of the development that you're seeing further up on Niagara Street coming down, but I was still worried that would be gentrification and taking it away from the Latino community. Yeah, so yeah, it's kind a... of tough to say how you can integrate the community and invest in it without taking it away from the people, but obviously increasing the minimum wage so the people who have been there would be able to afford to continue living there once it is changed and updated would be important. Tell me about your employees. What's their makeup? Uh, All over the place. Uh, Obviously, I'm Latina. We're all women. And we have another Hispanic Latina 
that is on staff now, and then another, um, I think she's Polish-American. Have they shared stories about how they are affected by wages or by poverty? Again, you're paying a decent wage. Yeah. But in general, you're connected to this issue through them. I would say yes. Um, A lot of my employees are able to live decently, but I would like to give them the tools to not only live decently, but able to afford luxuries as well. And that's my goal is for everyone to be able to afford to be a homeowner and to be able to get an expensive bottle of wine or a tattoo Mm. or whatever it is that they want to that feels like improves and makes their life better. I had no idea tattoos were expensive. They're super expensive. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Joanna Dominguez is with us. She's uh, the, the owner and the operator of Put a Plant on It in Buffalo. It's an Elmwood Village shop. It does interior, uh, plant interiors. It does plant sitting. Uh, and, and she is, again, leading this group, this effort, to push at the state level for both a minimum wage that goes up to fifteen fifty, but also a minimum wage that is then, after that, pegged to inflation. So when inflation gets worse, the CPI, Consumer Price Index, then the wages would automatically rise. How broad is your coalition? You mentioned El Buen Amigo being another part of it. Yeah. So locally, it's Buen Amigo, African Air Food Food Co-op. I think we have about 20 local organizations. 20. Wow. But then it goes, obviously, all the way across New York State. And does a lobbying group like that make a difference? Uh, I guess what I'm really asking is, isn't the debate dominated by the business council or at, or those kind of groups? And it's I feel like it's also dominated by larger businesses. Yeah. And, and this is something that I find a lot in just trying to find anything about how to run a small business is people – like a lot of the statistics that you see are 50 or more employees, and that's considered a small business. But there's very little – focused on what I would say like a micro small business is, which would be me, which is five or less employees. But it's us that I feel like are the cornerstones of community, and it's our voices that need to be heard. It's interesting that you say it that way, too. Community. It's a, it's You're on, you're on a strip yeah. that has certainly got that, but you feel it more broadly throughout the entire city. Definitely. Really? Yeah. Are you an optimist? Overall, I feel like I need to be an optimist, but at the end of the day, I I would say I'm, I'm a pessimist, but I also like to just charge ahead. I'm not going to let anything take me down. You don't so. think it's going to happen, but you charge and hope it will anyway. I will always fight for it. All right. Joanna, thanks so much for stopping by. This was a, a great conversation. Thank you. Joanna Dominguez is the owner and operator of Put a Plant in It uh, Buffalo uh, on the, in the Elmwood Village Strip near Breckenridge. Not too far from where I had a college apartment once upon a time. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.